But this week, here's what we're going to do. We're going to finish Ezra. Amen? It's been a while. We've been tracking through Ezra. We're going we're gonna to finish Ezra. If you've been with us here all through the book of Ezra, then, uh, hey, pat yourself on the back. Some of you uh, have never heard a message on Ezra, much less got the whole book now under your belt. And so, hey, think about it. Praise the Lord. If you've sat through this, if you've caught the majority of these, maybe you've caught up on the, on the, uh, on the website to listen to some of the messages you've missed, you have now, after today, you'll have Ezra under your belt. I mean, that's, that's, that's something to be said, right? I was thinking back in the last couple of years, if you've been here all the way from the beginning, you've probably got Philippians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, some of you, Titus, uh, the Lucan parables, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, a whole spiel on church discipline. You got the book of Philemon. Uh, you got some of you, some many of you men got Joshua. And now you're going to have Ezra, these chunks of scripture under your belt. And I'm not saying that to brag upon our church and to brag from this pulpit about what we do from here. Uh, I hope you'll see by the end of today's message why that's important. So, so hold that in the back of your mind, okay? You have these chunks of Scripture. And I hope that at the end of this year, at the end of every year, you kind of look back on the year and say, you know, am I better off in the Word of God than I was in the past New Year coming? And if you've been around here, then praise the Lord. You've got some chunks of Scripture to, uh, to be foundations of your life. I'm excited this morning, um, and uh, I'm not real good at it. At, uh, expressing excitement, but uh, I have this this sort of reserved excitement for this morning's message. We're going to do chapters nine and ten, not because there's not a whole lot in either chapter nine or ten that we couldn't spend more time in it, but because I want you to see the as many times we do. I want you to see the overall theme. I want you to see the overall heart of the passage. Uh, certainly, there are more details we could go into, but I want you to see. I want you to see the big picture, and I'm excited about this because uh, while it is, you're going to see. Uh, uh, um, somewhat sad, uh, even dark at moments, um, lowly, humbling passage. By the end of my prayer time, by my end of my study and, and examining this and asking God where we go with these two chapters, uh, it is a joyous, it is a joyous passage of Scripture. I hope it becomes dear to your heart by the time we're done, okay? You're going to see how dark it is, and then I hope that you see the light that is in this passage by the time we're done. Hard news, but it's, it's good news. And in fact, as I was thinking about it, the, the essence of these two chapters, the essence of these two chapters, as I look back on 2008 and, and even past that in the, in the beginnings of our church, the essence of these two chapters has been, has been really my prayer for us up to this point. God is in some ways shifting it, and you're going to hear more about that as I talk about it in a couple of weeks. But God is in some ways shifting that. But up to this point, these two chapters have really been the cry of my heart for you as individual members of this body and for us collectively, that we would get some of the things that uh, Ezra is going to get here and that the people of Israel, the remnant of Israel, are going to get in this passage. Let me tell you what it's about. Last night, uh, uh, as become our annual tradition, we, uh, we find a night, usually around Christmas, to take the kids out and just drive them around, find a neighborhood that's got a bunch of lights, and just drive around and let them, you know, ooh and ooh over the deer head going up and down and the Santa globe, you know, that's half falling over, et cetera. And so we did that last night. Last night we did it. We drove over to a neighborhood near us, and we drove around. We were looking at all the lights. And so we came back, and it was kind of late. I mean, the kids were yawning, kind of falling asleep, and uh, so they weren't all, didn't have, you know, all their wits about them. And uh, 
we're in the van, and our van has these automatic doors. I opened both automatic doors for the kids, right? And uh, Grady's already out of his seat now. He's unbuckling himself, doing that whole deal. And so he jumps out, and he, he had it in his mind that he didn't want to get out his side. For whatever reason, he wanted to get out with his brother. He was going to go help get his, his brother undone. He was going to go out his brother's side. So he reached back, and he pulled the handle, and it's an automatic door. So he just pulled the handle, and it starts to shut. And I hear the door shutting, and I'm wondering, why is the door shutting, and Grady's not out of the van yet? So I turn around as I was driving. I turn I wasn't driving. I was in the driver's seat. I turn around, and I look back, and Grady's up out of his seat, sitting on the edge, uh, watching the door shut, but he's got his hand on the back of, the, of, the, of the, you know, the door compartment. And he's just looking at me as I'm looking at him, and I scream like a girl, Grady, get your hand out of the door. And Kimberly just screams and shuts her eyes because she doesn't want you to even look. And Corbin's like in the back like this, freaking out. He doesn't know what's going on. And, and I yelled probably louder than I've ever yelled, uh, Grady, get your hand out of the door. And being that I freaked like that, he just froze. And so he just sat there. And I watched the door just and close on his hand. And, I, you know, for the, for the moment I just thought, this is going in slow motion. There was, there was nothing I can do. There was nothing I could do. And I just watched his door shut on his hand. And he's staring at me. And he doesn't cry. And so I ask him, is your hand stuck? And he says, yeah. And then he starts to cry. And I think mostly I scared him because by the grace of God, he had his hand in, in probably the, one of the only places where there was a lot of padding and you know the little rubber stuff there. And so his little hand... It got squished, but uh, it was just in the in the perfect place where he didn't he didn't really get hurt. And so I open the door, and he you know starts crying and things. And I go around and I grab him. And and as it happens, and and as I as I picked him up out of the van, you know, my heart was just uh, a couple things were running through my mind. Number one, I was just I was just disgusted. Frank, I was like, oh, you didn't do what I just saw you do, did you? And he did. And I, so I was just like, ah, oh, can't believe you did that. In fact, he's done it before. From the outside, reached in, tried to grab the door, and it just shuts on his fingers. I don't care what they say about those automatic doors. They don't stop, okay? Just know that. They don't stop. And so I'm thinking, you've done this before, son. And just this brief moment between me getting out of the car and grabbing him, and he's crying and making sure he's all right. Oh, my gosh, you've done this before. What were you thinking? What were you thinking? He slammed your hand in the door again. I told you. How many times have I told him? How many times have I told him? That's what Ezra 9 and 10 is essentially about. Israel, they're going to find that they're slamming their hand in a door that they've slammed it in before. And uh, it's going to hurt. And uh, Ezra, who we've learned a little bit more about in the last couple, uh, looks into Ezra. Ezra, the heart of a father for this nation, he has sort of the same response I did. How in the world? How in the world could you get yourself right back into what, what you knew would be painful? You knew the danger. How in the world? How in the world? Let's look at it. I want to show you. Um, there's some things in, in these two chapters. We're not going to hit all the details. I want to give you ten things as we just kind of walk through this in chunks. Ten things that we need to get. Ten, ten things we need to draw from these two chapters. I think we'll be better off if we do. Number one. We need to see, we need to see true confession. Chapter 9, look what happens. Now when these things had been completed, and these things, we saw in the last couple of messages here, that Ezra had returned, 
he, he was allowed to come out of exile himself. There was, there was a remnant already there, but he came back and he steps into leadership. And we saw just his, just his extravagant obedience to God. And everything that he did, he came back, he dotted every I, he crossed every T, he took everything that the foreign king had gave him to take back to the temple, he brought it, he accounted for all of it, he did everything they were supposed to do, they celebrated there at the end of chapter 8, the treasure was placed in the temple, everything he did according to God's plan. You remember what it said about Ezra, that the hand of his God is upon him. Why was the hand of his God upon him? Because he had his hand in the word of God. He was listening to God. He was attentive to what God wanted. So after Ezra had done all these things, we get chapter 9. Now when, when these things had been completed, look what happens. And we really don't have any idea directly why this happens, but I think I, ha- I think I have a good guess. When these things had been completed. The princes, those are the leaders of Israel at the time, they approached Ezra saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, so not just the, not just the lay people, but the leaders, don't miss that have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land. And, and on our study here in Ezra, you know that the, the separation from the people in the land was not an ethical separation in and of itself. It was a separation from the deities that those peoples brought with them. It was a separation from the pagan worship that they brought with them. Okay? And they say, we, did, we didn't do that. According to their abominations, those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, all those, all those people who inhabited the land now as they returned. Well, we have taken some of their daughters as wives for ourselves and for our sons so that the holy race, holy is the connotation of separated for the, for the specific and intentional and unique usage of God. So that the holy race, and that word race there is literally seed. Big big word, don't miss it. They were a seed that God was planting that should flower to the world and be a display of his glory and grace. Now look what they've done. That holy seed has been intermingled with the peoples of the land. And the hands of the princes and the rulers have been Foremost in this unfaithfulness, not only the, the lay people, but right down to the leaders, they were guilty. Confession. First thing we need from this passage is confession. You know, confession, very plainly, very simply, is, is when you agree to the charges that are levied against you. Did you do what you were not supposed to do? Yeah, I did it. No excuses. No rationalization. Did I do what I wasn't supposed to do? God says this is right. God says this is wrong. Did I do what was wrong? And we find here, I think, because of Ezra's, <clears throat> excuse me, Ezra's faithfulness in previous chapters, Ezra had been faithful to the God who was faithful to him. He was attentive to his God. I think, I think the people in the land, as Ezra came back, saw Ezra's obedience. I think it prompted their confession. You know, Ezra stepped on the scene with just this aura of holiness, being separated to God for God's use. And I think it impacted all those around him. That they came and they said, Ezra, man, we're glad you're here. Listen to what we've been doing. 
a sad thing. It's a sad thing. We've, we've been doing what's, what's been wrong. We need that kind of confession. We need to call sin, sin, where it is. Second thing I want to show you in verse 3, we need some people who, uh, who actually care. Look at Ezra's heart right here. This, this is a beautiful verse. When I, Ezra, heard about this matter, look what he does. I tore my garment and my robe. That's not just the outer garment, but he went all the way down to his underwear, okay? It was customary to tear your outer garment, you know, if you were really sad. But if it was devastating, you tore everything. Ezra's heart was devastated at hearing this confession. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. Do you get this picture of Ezra? He just sits in utter shock. I can't believe you slammed your hand in the door that you slammed it in a hundred times before. How many times has this scenario happened to the nation of Israel? It's what took them out of the land in the first place. Now these who are born in captivity are back and they got, them, they got themselves right in the same mess. Ezra just tears his clothes. All signs in that culture of, of mourning. Someone's dying here. Other cultures would pull hair, but more elaborately, they would, they would shave heads. And that was forbidden for the nation of Israel. What was allowed, what was allowed, not to shave your hair or to shave your beard, what was allowed, check this out. You could pull it out. Other pagan cultures, let them shave. We're going to one up here. You, you really want to show a contrite heart? Why don't you rip it out? That's what, this is what Ezra does. You, you see the heart of this guy? We need, we need people, as we end up this year and as we go into talking about what we may perceive for our church in the future, um, this has got to be the heart of of our congregation. This has got to be the heart of our, our church as a whole and individually. I mean, we've got to have some of this. We've got to have more of it than we don't have of it. Does that make sense? I mean, when sin enters, we've got to have people that, that actually care. He didn't do this as a formality. Let me just tell you, you're not pulling out part of your beard as a formality, okay? This broke Ezra's heart broke Ezra's heart. We need some we need some people who actually care to that depth. He mourned, he was appalled. He just fell down right there. Here's the next thing we need. It's in verse four. We need we need the word of God. And I told you I'd come back to this. Look at how the word of God, you remember how Ezra was noted because he had he had his heart set on the word of the Lord, and God put his hand on him because of it. Look at what it comes down to here in verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Don't miss this here. We need the word of God. One of the main reasons why you don't come here and hear messages from random 
you know, tangents and movie applications, et cetera, et cetera. We, we, we tend to teach you chunks of the Word because I know when you get out there, there's nothing that will do you more good than chunks of Scripture hidden in your heart. And it says here that at the Word of the God of Israel, they heard it, they, they listened, and they learned. Now look at the next thing. This is the fourth thing. In the same verse, not only not only did they hear the word of God, but they trembled at it. And that's a that's a very choice word, I think, on the part of the author, both human and divine. And as I pray about our church, and as I've been praying about our church, where we've come from, where we're going, etc., we, we got to have some of this. Very simply, we got to have some of this. We got to have people who. Who, who are in the Word of God, who are listening attentively to the Spirit of God with the help of the Holy Spirit residing in them. But when He speaks, check this out, we got to have some people who sit trembling. I mean, are you ever moved by what God is doing or saying or prompting to the point where you just, you just tremble at His Word? That doesn't happen enough for me probably in the same boat. We need, we need some more trembling at the Word of our God. Number five, we need people who take responsibility before God. Look at verse five and six. But at the evening offering, Ezra says, I arose. He'd been sitting all day, just dumbfounded. Did you catch some of the words? Appalled. Twice used. Appalled. He just sat in silence, wondering how in the world did they do this Thing again. But at the evening offering, verse 5, he says, I, I got up. I got up from my stupor and uh, what he calls his humiliation. Even with my garment and my robe torn. And look at what he gets up to do. He gets up from just sitting and pondering what the nation has done. <laughs> look at what he gets up to do. He gets up to fall down. Check it out. Even with my garment and my robe torn, I fell on my knees, stretched out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, now notice notice the first person, personal pronouns here. Did Ezra have any part in this sin? Not that we know of. It's a safe bet that he had no part in the sin that is that is mentioned and confessed here. But look at look at his Look at his prayer. As he falls, garments torn, beard and hair plucked crazy, looking like he's got mange, he, he gets up and he goes into the temple at the time of the evening offering and he falls down in front of God and listen to what he says. Oh my God, I am ashamed. We've already seen that he's been appalled. Look at some of the words he uses here. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. What was he embarrassed to do specifically? To lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads. Literally, have multiplied over our heads. They've stacked up, is the Hebrew word. So high that they're, they're, they're grown above us. I would have to look up to see their height. And they're just stacking up. He said, because of that, I'm embarrassed. 
I'm embarrassed and ashamed even to even to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities. Do you see do you see the community in the heart of Ezra? We're going to talk a little bit more about this later, but he understood that the sin of the body affected him and it affected the glory of God and all that they were trying to accomplish as a nation to be holy and used for God's unique and intentional purposes. It hurt him deep. Didn't even want to look at God. He was afraid. He was afraid to look upon God. Because the sin has risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. We need some people like this. We need, we need some of this. That when there is confession made, it touches us to the point where we, we just we're, we fall down. <laughs> we mourn over the sin. We're appalled at it. I don't know that that happens enough. But, but even further, we need people who, to some degree or another, not only for their individual sins, but for the corporate state of the body of Christ. They have a heart that mourns over what goes on as a community. We, we need some of that. Number six, we need to get the big picture. Look at verse 7. Ezra, I think his attitude was such because he, he had a good, a good idea of the big picture, grand scheme of things. Look at what verse 7 says. Since the days of our fathers, this is all, remember, in his prayer to God. He's going to start recounting. He's going to start recounting the faithfulness of God and the sin of Israel. Look at this. Since the days of our fathers, to this very day, God, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands. It's our fault. We've been given to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. Understand that, that although they're back in the land and they've rebuilt the temple... They're still under a foreign ruler. They're not a nation. They're not a, they're, not a, they're not a state unto themselves that governs themselves. They're still under the thumb of a pagan ruler. The effects of sin previous. But now, for a brief moment, verse 8, for a brief moment, this is Ezra's summary of where they are in Ezra's day. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us, this is a beautiful picture, a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. Even though we are where we are, we're suffering the consequences that we've suffered. Sin has paddled us in life the way it has. And we have all these repercussions of sins of our fathers way back. God has been gracious to us. Look where we are, he cries out to God. Look at where you have us, that you've brought us back to the land. We've rebuilt the temple. No, we're, we're not on our own. We're not 
we're not authorities to ourselves. We're, we're, still, we're still slaves in that sense. Look at what he says. He said, God, you've given us a peg in your holy place. That, that peg, they would have known what this meant. In Ezra's day, it was, it was a literal, it was a, it was a hook, if you will. A peg where in the holy place of God, holy things were kept. Not just holy things, but valuable things. This is how Ezra sees the nation, this remnant that God has, this remnant that God has been gracious to and has saved, even, even in their sin. He's saved and he says, uh, like, like something precious or holy to you, God, you've given us just this little peg in your house. And if that's it, that's enough. For we are slaves, yes. Yet in our bondage, verse 9, our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? What shall we say after this? After what? After all that God's done, in spite of our sinfulness. After all God's done, in spite of our sinfulness, what in the world can we say? What we need to say, as we're says, is that we have forsaken your commandments still. <laughs> we slammed our hand in the same old door. We've done what you have commanded your servants Prophets saying, the land which you are entering into possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters. And he starts to recount here verses previous to this in the law that they as a nation had at this point. It was their Bible at this point. And so he starts to he starts to quote some verses that they knew well. Where God had explicitly told them, don't slam your hand in that door again. The land which you are entering to possess is unclean. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt. Look at this. Since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities. What he says there is, our sin is stacked up this high. Equal punishment would be right here. And you haven't done that. The consequences of our sin have, have bitten us. It's hurt. Our nation's not what it should be. But God, you've been gracious to us. You've not requited us equally for our sin. You see, Ezra understands that God is, even in this exile, even in the return, even in their, all the hardship that they've been under, he understands that God, even in their sin, has been, has been extremely and extravagantly gracious to this nation. You, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped Remnant as this. That's where they are. Now look what he says. In light of the confession, 
Verse 14. Shall we again... Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Now, let me say this right here. Uh, don't get so caught up in the, in the sin of their day that you miss the sin that you carry around with you, that you, you keep hurting yourselves with, that I, keep, that I keep slamming my hand in the door with. Okay. Our sin may not be their sin, but there's a sin nonetheless that perhaps many of us carry around with us that we we it, it gets us and we look around and say how in the world did I do that very same thing again how how in the world did I slam my hand in that door again shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with peoples who commit these abominations would you not be angry god with us it's a great insightful question it's a question where all israel should be After all you've done for us, after all the grace you've extended to us, you've not requited us equally for our sin, after all that, would you not be angry with us now that we've done the same thing again? Do not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape. I want you to notice that Ezra never asked for God to forgive them. He's recounting the faithfulness of God. He's confessing their sin. He's agreeing that what they've done is wrong. It's interesting. Not once does he have the audacity. The heart of Ezra has has no audacity to actually say to this God who's who's been as gracious as he has, God, will you you extend that grace even even further? In fact, he just asks the question, I'm surprised you're not just going to wipe us off the face of the earth completely. We need a little bit of that heart, that, that big picture heart that understands, look at all that God has done for me. Look at how he has not paid me equally for my sin with, 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 uh, with punishment. Look at how he's still been gracious. Look at how he's still given me time. Look at how he's been long-suffering with me. We, we need people who, who understand this big picture of the gracious, extravagant mercy of God. To the degree that we would come to the place like Ezra is coming and say, how in the world, God, could you do any more? How in the world could you even be more gracious to us? Like the heart of Ezra, at some point, you've got to come to the place where you say to God, God, I'm surprised you even put up with me anymore. I think that's healthy. That's healthy. Now, that's the hard part. We're going to get to the, to the grace here. We also need people to be amazed at God's grace. We need people to be amazed at God's grace. When uh, Grady shut the door on his hand last night, uh, I was initially I was just disgusted. I couldn't believe. And the thought was, you've done this before. How could you do it again? When I got him out of the door, when I got him out of the van, and uh, he started crying, I, I could see not just the pain. Because I really don't think it hurt him that much. And not just the fact that I yelled like a girl and scared him. uh, But what I saw in his eyes was true repentance. What I saw in his eyes was, you know what? I get it. (laughs) It took me a couple times, but I get it now. I get that you've told me a hundred times, don't mess with the door. It will hurt you. And as I 
as I initially felt compelled to, to chastise him and say, didn't I tell you a hundred times not to do this? Didn't I say, don't mess with the door, you're going to get hurt? Look, you got hurt. I told you so. Uh, that came and went very quickly because what I saw in his eyes was a, a genuine heart of confession and repentance, although he said nothing. I, I just understood he got it. He knew. See, the heart of the Father is attentive to the heart of the repentant man. Um, a repentant heart, a repentant heart, always, always, grabs the attention of a merciful Father. And as I, as I thought about this last night after that whole episode with Grady's hand, uh, I was up a little bit looking through this passage. It just occurred to me, you know, what I felt, and I was, I was frankly a little surprised that, that I, just, I just hugged Grady and I just said, man, I love you. I'm glad it, I'm glad it didn't hurt you worse than it did. Um, now you see, don't you? Yeah, I see. I won't do it again, Dad. And my, my instinct as a father was just to love on him. It was just to hug him. You know, there, there's nowhere in this passage. We have no record. We have no document. Interesting, very interesting. We have no document of any further consequences, of any, any punishment from God on high bringing wrath down upon these people. Now listen, in times past, when the nation was unrepentant, where they were in sin, and they wouldn't turn from it. God punished, always with the heart to bring them back, just like he sent them into exile. But very interesting here. They get themselves into, into a similar situation, but they wake up, they confess, they're appalled, they're embarrassed, they see their sin is mounting over their heads. How can we even look to God? God, look at everything you've already done for us. How could we get into this again? I can't believe you wouldn't just wipe us off the face of the earth. And there's no, there's no harsh word from a God on high saying, I told you so. Saying, let me take you in and spank you for sticking your hand in the door again so that you learn. I think what we get here is we get a guy that he's probably sitting on the edge of his throne smiling saying, I think, I think they get it. I think they get it. And, and they're going to get themselves into this again. Nehemiah, you're going to find Ezra standing before the people again, calling for confession and repentance. And here's the deal. We're going to get ourselves into this over and over and over with whatever our sin is. Right? The joy in this passage to me was the amazing grace of God. Look at what he says in verse 15 of chapter 9. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. The inference is, we are not, but you, God of Israel, you're righteous. For we have been left an escaped remnant, as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. It was a proper attitude before God, that in their sin, they had no excuses, only confession, they were left only to the mercy and the grace of a God who had the right and, frankly, the ability to wipe them off the face of the earth. Chapter 10 shows a couple other things. Let me just briefly tell you what they are. 
The ninth thing I was going to give you as uh, one of the things we need from these chapters is we need, we need not only a heart of change, but we need change in activity. Chapter 10 is all about this. Let me just summarize it for you. At the, at the place of confession, humility, repentance, they get up and some of the leaders of the people come to Ezra and say, Ezra, get up. Uh, everything you've said is true. The weight of this is upon us. They say, literally, we take full responsibility. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to, as a, as a unified body, we're going to confess it and we're going to deal with it. And they took some very literal and practical steps to deal with the sin that had infiltrated the body. They set up a commission. They went to the leaders. They had people come and confess. They dealt with the sin. You want, you want another point to take from this? We, we need to not only have a heart change when sin is involved, we've got to have, a, we gotta have an atti- activity change. It's not enough for us just to lament over our sins, frankly. Our lament has to be deep enough. It has to be low enough. Our picture of the grace of God has to be big enough. Our disgust with our own sin has to be grand enough that it causes us to say, ah, there's no way I can ever I can ever return to that sinful way. We've got to find practical ways to get ourselves out of that sin, to deal with it, to deal with it. The last thing I had for you from this is that uh, the last verse of chapter 10, will you look at it with me? At some point when, when sin is involved, we have to be willing to accept the consequences of sin. Even in times of repentance, there are consequences of sin. Look at, look at verse 44 of chapter 10. All the people had come and they had confessed their sin and they dealt with it. They, they, put, they put action behind their heart. Verse 44, the, the book ends like this. And I, think it's, I think it's pretty interesting. All these, meaning the list above, all these had married foreign wives and some of them had wives by whom they had children. What they did was they went through the painful task of separating themselves from their sin. Now, don't miss this. As they separated themselves from their sin, they separated themselves from very emotional ties called children. Was there pain in repentance? There sure was. Was there a consequence for their sin? There sure was. Frankly, as I said earlier, this is the only consequence there is to the sin. You don't see fire come down from heaven from God. You don't see a further punishment in exile. We get the practical consequences of their sin. But men and women who confessed were embarrassed, were disgusted, who saw the reality of the extremity of their sin stacking up over their head, had a heart that said, I I can't even look at you, God, right now because I'm so embarrassed because I've been here before and I've done this before. I can't believe you would extend grace even an inch further. That God... That father is just wrapping his arms around a nation and saying, that's all I needed. Frankly, that's, that's, that's what the heart of the father has always been. That we agree when we're wrong, we admit it, we confess it, and we, we fall in front of him and we put ourselves at his mercy. Look at what they did here in the Old Testament. You'll remember this. Chapter 10, verse 19. 
They pledged to put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. They did what they needed to do. They went through the provided path of being forgiven their sins. Someone had to pay. An innocent animal was slain. Where else do you see a ram who pays the price for the sin of man? I think of Abraham and Isaac, the ram caught in the thicket. The grace of God providing a way out for Abraham. The grace of God providing a way out for the nation. There's no vindictive God in this passage. I think it's because of the heart of the people. I told you earlier that this is a, uh, and this is, this is such a, a joyous passage to me. It's because we have some benefits, or in part, it's because we have some benefits that uh, Ezra and his contemporaries didn't frankly have. Let me read you something that uh, one of the commentators noted of Ezra and his people. The people of Israel had to resolve their questions and their sins without the aid of the miraculous twists of nature or thunderous voice from the mountain or a fire to illuminate their way. Instead, these people were left with a book. So they read of distant times and of people who, even to them, were known as ancients. They opened the histories and early law books to help them navigate the spiritual and social issues of their day. But this led to a new set of difficulties because they lived in a context different from that described in their holy writings. The nation no longer, the nation officially no longer existed. Their neighbors originated from nations not mentioned in the Mosaic commands. Their specific situation was not addressed in the Bible they had. Have you seen any similarities? Ezra and his Contemporaries, much like us, as they read the Bible that they had, as they read the books of the law that they had, uh, they were reading about a, 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 an ancient people, e- even in their day, even, even uh, relative to their date. They were ancient. The activity of God was ancient in the documents they read. In all of Ezra, there was no... There was no Cloud by day, no fire by night. There was no thunderous voice from on a mountain. There was no burning bush. You notice that? Here's what they had. They, they, they had. they had attentive souls to listen to God. And it may have started primarily with this guy named Ezra who had his, had his mind set on the Word of God to listen to God, to be attentive to God. But it... But it It affected the whole nation. What did they have? In fact, they had less than we have. They had not the Holy Spirit indwelling them to guide them as we do. They had not some of the benefits of of the previous generations of Israel. They're this group that's kind of caught in between. But what do they do? As best they can, they confess and they're obedient. They change their ways. They, they throw themselves at the feet of God and say, if your mercy can extend an inch further, we would be amazed. They take the route that, that God has given them. 
They sacrifice what God says to sacrifice. And we're going to think of the benefits that we have. Benefits that we have. Some of the some of the verses that came to mind as I thought about the heart of God now and as we confess, as we examine our lives and we, we, we recognize sin and we confess it and we deal with it and we change our ways, etc. I thought of a couple of verses. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I think if only in the heart Ezra knew that verse. I think if only in his heart Ezra knew that that was true of his God. That his only chance was was to fall as low as he could. Ephesians 3.12, through Christ we have boldness and a confident access through faith in Christ. Hebrews 4.16, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne, not of judgment, but the throne of grace. So that we may merely find, so that we may receive mercy and find grace. When we go to the throne of God in confession, I hope you understand it's a throne of grace. We receive mercy there. We find grace there. In your sin, here's where I want to leave us today. As you discover sin in your life, as you go through your heart with a fine tooth comb, and your heart uh, longs to align with the heart of men like Ezra and the nation of Israel at this time, they did well. Let me just say, they did well. Chapters 9 and 10, despite the sin, is a success story for the nation of Israel. Why? Because they did, they did what God simply has always wanted them to do and is only asking us to do. Confess, repent, put your faith in me. Agree what you're doing when it's wrong is wrong. As best you can, turn away from it. Don't do it anymore. Have a heart that is appalled at your sin. Throw yourself at my mercy. Throw yourself at my mercy. The heart of the Father is that His throne is a throne of grace where we receive mercy and we find extravagant, extravagant grace. I don't know about you, but um, I, I come today with with a clear understanding, this week in particular, I come with a clear understanding of the mounting sin over my head. And, and I'm not I'm not just saying that as a as a just a you know a preacherly thing to say. I'm talking about literal sin over my head. To such a degree that I, I can't I can't hardly um I can't hardly imagine uh, looking into the eyes of the God who's done all that he's already done for me. As we wrap up this year, as I said, this, this section of Scripture sort of embodies what my heart has been for our church. Here's what it is. That collectively and individually, we would deal seriously with our own sin and we would clearly recognize the extravagant grace of our God. In a couple of weeks I told you that we're going to talk about where I, where I see maybe our church going in this next year. Here's the deal. We, we can't even talk about that 
until we, we've done this. And this is not a one-time deal. Can I just tell you, you better take chapters 9 and 10. You better take this attitude of confession, repentance, broken heartness, and you better just carry it with you into wherever we're going as a church. Because if this doesn't continue to happen, then we're going to fall short. We may make it a few months, and then we're, we're, going, to hit a, we're going to hit a brick wall. If this is not more true of our church than it is less true of our church, then we're not going anywhere. The collective heart, the individual heart of our church has to be this. That God, all I can do is confess, repent, throw myself at your mercy. The good news is we we understand some things that uh, Ezra may only hoped for. We understand that his throne is a throne of grace. And as we draw near, he jumps off the porch and he runs out and he just he just wraps his arms of love around us. He hugs us and he loves us. And as we start to confess, it's as if he says, that's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. 